Welcome to Escape the Earth. We are a sci-fi and fantasy podcast broadcasting from an undisclosed location within the San Antonio Public Library. We are supported by the library and by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. So a big shout out to them. My name's Alyssa and the other crew members today are Mary Elizabeth. Hello, hello. And Tim. Greetings, Earthlings. We also have a special guest with us today. Her name's Felicia. Felicia, would you tell us a little bit, a little about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Felicia. I am a high school English teacher. I am a single Black mom of three wonderful children uh, who pretend to be adults, and four wacky dogs, and a very demanding Bombay cat. I am a Star Wars original trilogy enthusiast and just an all-around nerdy lady. I'm happy to be here with you today. Wow, three kids, you all on your own. You, uh, that's a lot of work. It is, it is, <laughs> but it is rewarding at the end of the day to make sure that there's really nice people in the world that love Star Wars as much as I do, because I started them early, and I'm just really thankful to have them in my life. They're really amazing people. And so what's their opinion of uh, Andor? Uh, they haven't watched yet. We have, um, my oldest is working, uh, I could say he works for a streaming service that is affiliated with Andor. And I'm like, you're not watching your own product? And he's like, I don't have time. Um, and my middle kiddo, she is in a master's program. So she is studying constantly and producing papers and whatnot. And then my youngest is in her senior year of high school. So again, more studying, constant studying. I don't know how you do it. And you teach high school, one of the most yes. important jobs in the world. Oh, thank you. That's sweet. You know, I usually have two reactions. Ooh, you teach high school or, oh my gosh, you're awesome. I like the, the awesome side. So today we're going to be talking about Tochi Onyabuchi's Goliath. Before we get into it, we just want to warn everybody about a couple of things. The first thing, spoiler alert, there will be spoilers. We go into this assuming that you've read the book, so we don't tiptoe or stutter step around anything. We're just going to wreck it from the beginning. Um, so if you haven't read the book, you may want to hit the pause button, go read it, come back to us. We truly believe you'll get more out of it if you've if you've read it, but you know maybe you just want to digest the story in a different way, and that's okay too. The second thing is is that this is a discussion geared towards adults, so we're not potty mouths or anything. But sometimes the subject matter will not be for youngling ears. Tochi Onyabuchi is the author of Goliath, and his previous in fiction previous fiction includes Riot Baby, which is a finalist for the Hugo Nebula and Locus and NAACP Image Awards and winner of the New England Book Award for Fiction, the Ignite Award for Best Novella, and the World Fantasy Award, the Beasts Made of Night series, and and the War Girls series. His short fiction has appeared in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, The Year's Best Science Fiction, and elsewhere. 
His nonfiction includes the book Skinfolk and has appeared in the New York Times, NPR, and Harvard Journal of African American Public Policy, among other places. He has earned degrees from Yale University, New York University, the Tisch School of Arts, Columbia Law School, and the Paris Institute of Political Studies. He currently resides in Connecticut. And I did a grueling amount of research on that, which means I went to Tochi Onyabuchi's site, tochionyabuchi.com, and went to the About Me section for the content of that uh, background information. So now I believe Mary Elizabeth is going to give us the synopsis on this book. I have a very brief synopsis that doesn't do any justice to this wonderful book, but here it goes. Colonists who left the poisonous atmosphere of Earth are returning only to clash with those who were left behind to fend for themselves. We mainly see the story through the eyes of Link, a stacker living day to day to survive and try to carve out a community with his fellow workers turned friends. And Jonathan, a colonist come to Earth to make a place for himself and his boyfriend. So is that the whole synopsis? That's the whole synopsis because um, there's so much that goes on. I couldn't figure out how to include all of the different voices, the different time jumps, the, the, there's a, it's, I, Alyssa has mentioned it before where you kind of can take this story as a grouping of vignettes of getting to know these people, uh, um, that are all trying to carve out a place for themselves on earth and some bumping into each other and hurting each other and some bumping into each other and making a life together. So I, well, I guess that's another way of saying it. <laughs> summarizing the book too. <laughs> the only thing that seems kind of constant with the, with the story itself is it's located around the area of Hartford, Connecticut, right? New Haven. New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven. Mm-hmm. New Haven, Connecticut. And um, the one thing that we know for sure is that there has been some sort of disaster that has left much of the planet irradiated. The people who had the means to do so, aka wealthy people, ran for the uh, for the hills. And now, at the time when the story starts, they're starting to come back, where while the people who have been forced to stay behind and eke out a living are having to wrap their minds around that return and how they feel about it. Right, because the return is, it's the gentrification of their home that they've created, um, a majority of the people who ran for the hills were white people and the majority of the people who stayed behind were blacks and people of color. So there's that clash of, of race and, and, cl- and class systems that are, that's happening. Um, gosh, this book just really, it really hit hard for me <laughs> to, to get through it. And then I was like, oh man, it's, I've, I had heard somewhere that people are calling it dystopian but for a lot of people it's their everyday life and so it was just like uh, uh yeah it was it was it, it's a it's kind of a rough read 
but it's an important and I just could not stop reading it once I got into it. It's like, oh, I need to, I need to wrap my head around all of these different voices. Well, I felt like this book for me was almost a weird sort of prediction because I like saw much of my community within this book, like things that are happening now, just not with the space element, but that feeling of, okay, we got left behind to deal with this problematic environment and we made a life out of it. And then outside groups like, oh, this is a great place to live. And they come back in and they take over our stuff and push us out. I'm like, oh my God, this feels like I'm reading like about the 60s or about reconstruction, you know, and it felt really odd to me because I was like, okay, I like know this feeling, but he's talking about a sort of possible future. So I was like, oh my gosh, this book is is tough, but I couldn't put it down. I absolutely had to know what was going to happen with everyone. Well, the thing about 60s and the reconstruction, you know, the those really are not that distant in the past you know people people tend to think that it's a really long time ago but when you look at the whole span of human history you know 30 30, years um recorded history only makes up about the last 3,000 of that and from the last 250 we've gone from you know rural animal power to industrial atomic power and so that's a really narrow slice of time in terms of the history of humankind and the world yeah it's just a few generations away for me like um like my aunts and my uncles you know they um my aunt experience the riots and the fire hoses and the dogs. My mom and my uncle, uh, they actually integrated their high school in East Texas. They were the first two black high school students to attend. And I'm like, these are people, you know, I reach out and touch and talk to about these issues. And, you know, it's not far away. It's not a hundred years away. It's not, you know, even really 50 years away. It's, it's again that feeling of kind of dissonance where it's like okay we're reading about this as if it's history and it's over but it's still affecting our lives it's still present I think I saw that as well in the book um, there's a part where they talk about um, the recession in 2008 and they talk about Detroit and they compare the New Haven of the book to Detroit in 2008 at that time um, and so it, it does, it connects with so many things that are happening in current day for, for me as well. And, um, I'm just going to have to own my whiteness on this one. Um, you know, this was a really eye-opening book for me. There were things that I saw, things that I read that just, they were surprising. And I feel really grateful that I've read them and I'm, I'm having a perspective shift as I got to read this book. That's really exciting and awesome for me. In my researching through this book, because I was like, I think I just need to hear a lot more voices. I need to hear other opinions. Um, you are 
several times placed in the book yourself. You're saying you are walking through the street, you are going through this and that. There's a part in there where there is something that's called poverty tourism. That's kind of, I didn't realize was a thing. And it is a thing that happens today where people go like in India to go see how they, how people's live. And it's just, it's a very interesting and just disaster tourism is another thing. Um, it's very eye-opening that things that I didn't realize were, are not of the future that are things that happen now. <laughs> it's just, it, it was really eye-opening, but you do get a sense of the people and their stories in here or like, you're, they're just relaxing and talking around a fire and, and telling jokes with each other. And <laughs> so it's not all doom and gloom, but it is, you know, it's, it's a story that the people ha are telling about themselves. It's what it feels like. But it's not a story of hope. It's not a story of redemption. It's not a story with a happy ending. It's very real. It's very real. Yeah, it's really sad. I found myself like having to take a moment because I felt really emotional when you had these characters, these wounded characters sharing their past and sharing their pain. It's like, oh, wow, this is, this doesn't feel like entertainment. This it was my first thought, like, okay, I'm a little bit sad right now. I'm gonna go hug my dog and harass my mother because she's like in the next room. I'm like, mom, this happened in the story. And she's like, honey, this story sounds so sad. So don't it does it have a happy ending? I'm like, no, of course it doesn't have a happy ending. They're like homeless and they they stack bricks for a living. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, it's uh really meaningful um, as well but oh gosh the sadness it was palpable throughout the yeah the the brief moments of hope that you get like the horses mm -hmm. are diminished later on oh <laughs> gosh just, that hurts so... me I did cry about that I did yeah because I'm the lady with four dogs and the cat and I've adopted squirrels and I'm trying to talk my kids into going with me to go horseback riding or just to meet the horses in real life. So those fictional horses broke my heart. I was like, no, not them. Whatever you do, not them. So that that was that was a toughie, you know, reading that section and realizing what was about to happen. Yeah. So let's talk about that scene for a minute in the book. So what happens is um, two of the characters, Sydney and Tamika. They are traveling about away from New Haven and they go out into the country. They run into a blueberry farmer, but while they're out there, they encounter a herd of wild horses and it's this special magical thing. And they decide that they're going to um, come back for these horses and bring them back to New Haven. And that's what they do. They get Bishop and they get the truck and they bring them back this herd of horses they, and they ride them back. There's like this beautiful scene where all these different members of the stacker group are riding the horses and, and connecting with them in a meaningful way. And they bring them back to New Haven. They build a stable. It becomes like a wonder of the neighborhood where people are showing up, they're seeing the horses. It's just like this amazing thing that's happening. And then there's um, Allison, who's um, a reporter from the space colonies 
who um, is trying to bring awareness to the plight of the stackers and the people of color that are in this neighborhood. So she writes an article about the horses and then that brings um, angry, angry white people down on them. And they, like the tragedies is that Link, one of the stackers ends up destroying, right? He burns down the barn because um, people are coming and harassing them. And, and the, the, um, the reporter is like, all I wanted to do was help. And it just shows you how that, how that exposure hurt. It was gut-wrenching. Yeah, I, I find it happens often within communities of color, but often in Black communities where you destroy something yourself before it gets destroyed. And it's heart-wrenching because you see it's like, I'm leaving, I'm moving, I'm salting the earth so no one can take it from me. I'm relinquishing it. And like for me, my grandparents are like, no, we're not giving up. We're going to guard what we love and we're going to protect what we love and we're going to react in a new way. So for me, I would have let the horses go. If I was afraid they were going to be taken away or if I was afraid that someone was going to co-opt the stable or somehow take it from me, then I'm like, no, they're going to go back into the wild and horses are smart. <laughs> They'll be able to take care of themselves. You know, they did before the stackers showed up, you know, and that's something I felt like um, Tochi could have touched on. It's like, hey, how did these horses survive out there on their own? You know, it was they were beautiful, natural, wild things that took care of themselves and they helped the humans heal. The humans needed the horses but I don't think the horses necessarily needed the humans. So that was pretty wild uh, reading that. I'm like, no, just let them go. You know, just set them free, set them back to the wild. But I could also see that almost destructive act of love, you know, that he did, but also a defiance where you're not gonna take this from me. I'm, I'm gonna get rid of it first. So that was when, that's when I did finally cry. I was like, oh, okay, I can't take anymore. I need a big break now. I had all four dogs with me <laughs> by this point. I'm like, hug me, I can't take it. And, but it was just, again, that really strong connection with the material, the connection with the book. And you can see that in our real lives you know, in the reality that we're living in now. So I'm like, I'm going to tell people all the time, don't destroy whatever you're doing. If you feel like it's in danger, don't destroy it. We will figure out a way to fix it. So if I can ask, what character did you most identify with in the story? Um, I actually felt connected to Sydney quite a lot. I know I'm chatting on here. But it usually takes me a long time um, on my personal side to, like, open up and share things with people. Like, I had probably known Mary Elizabeth probably six years before I told her my nickname, you know, and <laughs> she's one of my best friends. And just being in the desert, because I did spend some time in, the, in El Paso um, in high school. And so I felt like, oh, hey, this is kind of like me when they're out digging the cacti and they're talking with the Chihuahuans and, you know, dancing out in the desert. Um, but just how she didn't blossom until 
the horses came, you know, and then that's like, she had that queenly figure. Remember when they called them royalty, when they came riding out of the, the woods, I feel a lot of, of, of her, a connection to her, but I also feel some connection to Link because um, you're a person of color, you've gone to college. I didn't go to Ivy League, but you know, I went to school in town, but just people think, oh, you think you're from Yale or something. You think you're from Harvard. So kind of being pushed to the front if the group needed a spokesperson, they're like, oh, you went to college, you go. So I could connect with that as well. I agree with uh, with connecting to, to to Sydney. I think even though she had, she was sick. She was obviously sick. And even though she saw her community just melt down, she went out to try to still find a place for herself. Um, I identify with that when like, like going out and just trying to start anew. Um, she went out back to the blueberry patches to help that man who I still don't know if he connects with anybody besides her. <laughs> because I feel like Bishop has a connection with the most everybody in there. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I like, I like her also. I like, I like them all, but I liked her most. <laughs> and how about the scene with Bishop when he catches the comptroller? What'd you guys think of that? Ooh, dang. Everything about the robot cops and the robot dogs was so fascinating to me. Like I'm totally fascinated by Boston Dynamics and it was, I was tickled when Boston Dynamics was actually in the book and they were talking about the uh, the cop dogs because I, I grew up in Massachusetts. And so it's, it's interesting to me that that's like things that have happened in my home state. I, I think there was a big uproar recently about the police in Massachusetts actually using those robot dogs and people went nuts and were like, no, get that, get that out of here. So this was the, um, like the fast forward or kind of like the expansion of robot policing in the future and what it might look like. But that scene was crazy. That was wild. Like the, the, I love that they called them toasters. They had this right disparaging nickname for the, um, it seemed like there were two different types of cops. There were there was one type that seemed like they were fully, fully, uh, fully robotic, and then there were augmented humans as well. And I think the one Tim that you're talking about is he was an augmented, an augmented officer, right? Up until this point, everything you hear about Bishop is that he's kind of he's much older than the rest of the crowd that he's hanging out with. And he kind of moves slowly, and they're very worried that he's frail. But then all of a sudden, you know, when their food rations are cut off, he's sitting there with bugs in the truck waiting, and you see this guy go jogging by, and Bishop hops out of the truck, and as the guy comes around the corner, he pistol whips him and drags him into the truck, and you're like, that was the old man. Um but but the whole point of that action was is that he knew who controlled those food rations and what buttons to push with that guy. He even even makes a mental note like when he he tells the guy that we know where your daughters are going to school over in such and such town, and the guy doesn't even register concern about his daughters. He's only concerned about himself. Um, 
but but I found that to be a very interesting scene and as his backstory grew um it, it became more interesting to me up until that point um the author had been holding back I'm like I want to I want to know what he's got up his sleeve because we're spending a lot of time with him. And again, it, it reflected back onto my personal history. The older people in the community, you know, we call them original gangsters. You know, we call them OGs for a reason because, you know, they're not going to be wild and crazy. They're pretty laid back. But when the community is threatened or harmed, then they come out and they're like these almost like righteous saints coming out to defend the people. And at that scene, I laughed like a lunatic when he jumped the comptroller. I was like, oh God, he's so hood right now. No, we should, no, there's gotta be something else we can do. But I also thought about in, within the context of this world, that's all you can do. You can't sign a petition. You can't lobby city hall you really have to go out and jump an official to get you know stuff done so that for me really truly was one of the best scenes in the whole book that that scene made me happy the robbery and stuff i was laughing like a lunatic like oh gosh <laughs> I, I i need to realign my values because i was like oh i should be appalled by this but oh yeah violence okay and this is the second book where we've read of robotic cops because remember there was one in remote control too by Nettie Okorafor and that if you have not read that I, I highly recommend it because she's just a great writer um, but the robotic cop and that the little girl Sankofa she uh she actually broke the robot's brain because she didn't have any digital media about her that would allow him to track her, so to speak. I think that's also a really great turning point in the story where, um, where everything just starts to, all of the stories start to coalesce and, to, and, and, and characters start bumping into each other with their elbows rather than, you know, just conversations and getting to know each other. The other scene with robotic police that really was really effective to me is a scene towards the end where the stacker youth are just hanging out being youth and they've got their motorized bikes and they're just chilling and they're, you know, they're, they're talking crap and they're eating snacks and they're just kind of, they're loitering and hanging out. And all of a sudden um, a predator drone appears out of nowhere and a cop car comes around the corner and they start running from the police and um, Bugs, who's one of the youngest members of the stackers, his bike won't start, it chokes. And, um, and Link's trying to help get him, out of, get him out of there. And there's a big, I guess a magnet on the Predator drone and it starts like pulling the bike out from under him and they are just getting out of there. They leave everything, they run, they like ignore the police. And Bugs says to, to Link, he says, Link, we didn't do anything. And links us back. We scared white people. Whoa. Yes. That was. Whoa. <laughs> it, this happened after they had run into uh, Jonathan and David, David being Jonathan's boyfriend who came, they came down from the colony, wherever that is. And, um, and they were romanticizing this church that they had just found. And, 
when they step out, that's when the boys come upon them and they're just talking and talking trash to each other and, and kidding around with each other. And, and it scares them to see these black youth all together. And these men who you had been following and spouting the inequalities of the people around them, all of a sudden now being scared of the, the people they, were, they had thought they were thinking of ad, uh, advocating for. Because like you had said earlier, where the white girl had brought the white people to the, to the community because of the horses, it's that other thing where the, the white savior is not the savior, they're the destructors. And yeah. that's what leads to Bugs's death. And it's just so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And that, that theme of the white savior failing over and over, it comes across many times throughout the book. The intent and then falling flat. And you have early on, before Jonathan ever comes to Earth, David come, comes later, when they're first even conceiving the idea that they could go back, one of the first things you read is they warned him about the gangs. And then the invariably white folk who cautioned Jonathan against youthful bravado, against infantile nonchalance, knew that gangs existed, which is to say they knew as much as anybody did about gangs, which is to say they knew nothing. They said gang, and he knew they meant black. They said thugs, and he knew they meant the N-word. And Jonathan is, I believe, mixed race. I think David is white, but Jonathan, I believe, is um, half black and half white, but still from the space colony. And so you've got, you know, that aspect of it, too, where you've got identity. What group do you belong to? How do you fit in? Those themes as well are in the book. That's the really hard thing about race discussion now is like, how can anybody really consider themselves to be pure? I mean, like, we're all mixed. And yet it's a very difficult discussion for people to enter into. I look at it as we have to be advocates as educators, as librarians, as people working with the public, that if we continue to speak openly about race and race dynamics and class dynamics and keep the conversation going, that maybe it will affect the public and it will become easier to talk about. One of the biggest things is the N-word and it's, it's throughout the book. And so I had one of my cousins, like, why are you reading a book like that? It has the N-word in it, it's bad. And I'm like, um, dude, <laughs> there's two versions. There is the soft version with the A ending, and that's used within the group, almost as a form of affection. Like, dude, bro, sis, that's how we use it. But the hard R, the E-R, that's the bad one. That's the one that means you're nothing, you're trash, you're a slave. That's the racially incendiary one. And I think a lot of times people like conflate the two. It's like, it's all bad. 
Um, and I and I say as adults, you choose what you want to do and you choose what you want to say. But don't vilify a person or a book or media if they're using the soft N-word. Um, let's find out what's going on. Let's have context. Um, but that ER, that one, that's a riot right there. That's, you know, I'm going to hit you <laughs> with something hard, okay? Because you just, you just like disgraced me and my whole family saying that. Um, but again, it's like, if we keep talking about it, we keep bringing it to the forefront. We talk about really and truly respecting other people and, and saying, how do you identify? How would you like me to, to call you? What is your name? You know, and not just instantly stick someone in a box. Because you know, I felt like we had that sort of uh, categorizing because suddenly being from the colonies means you're white, it felt like in this book. And I'm like, no, some other people had to go. You know, other people have money. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's not just white people. It's, you know, we got some brown folks up there. We got a nice mix, I'm sure. We didn't get to run into them, but I know they're up there. Just like everybody left behind wasn't black or brown. You know, we, we've got some regular folks over here. We got some white people over here. They got left too. You know, we shop at the same H-E-B. You're stuck here with me. You know, that sort of feeling. But um, I think that big division was, okay, colonies are white and, and people on earth are black and there's this class, this clash between classes. Um, and we just have to talk about it. You know, we have to talk about things openly now <laughs> in 2022. So we don't reach this point. I'm like, oh my gosh. We need to start like a coalition or something. <laughs> like, please, can we avoid the Goliath world? I don't want that. I, I want to chill and hang out here. It is <laughs> much nicer out here. Absolutely. I was going to say, that just Felicia, thank you for bringing that up about how important it is to talk about race, how important it is to talk about these difficult conversations and libraries and schools and education being the people that can be at the front of that conversation. I, I really appreciate that. Really agree with that as well. You're it's welcome. hard to, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really hard to talk about. It's painful. It's, yeah. you know, I know for me personally, it requires a lot of self-examination. I have to think about ideas I've held, things that were taught to me um, and relinquish them and ask why they were taught to me. And if I still want to hold them, there's a lot of rethinking that's involved. And with that rethinking is is pain and grief. And sometimes that's hard for people to face. Right, absolutely. I'm thankful to you just saying, hi, we I need to rethink these things. That's a huge step forward. You know, we have one person saying, I need to rethink, you know, my own prejudices or my own thoughts. And that includes people of color too. You know, I, I say constantly, especially with my high schoolers, don't judge somebody by what they look like or where you think they came from, you know? Um, and think about why you feel like that. That person could be your best friend. That could be the love of your life. That could be the neurosurgeon that saves you one day. You know, look at them as a person, not a race, not a color. You know, we all need to be open about ourselves and how we relate to others. So 
I'm thrilled we can do that. I'm thrilled we can do that together. Me too. There was a, I guess, a commercial that I saw. It was a foreign commercial. I don't remember if it was from Finland or Norway or one of those places. And, um, they had a group of complete strangers in the room, in a, in a big room. It was like a, like a warehouse type room, you know, concrete floor, not a lot of decor, just a lot of open space. And they were all divided into groups, you know, men, women, white, black, and and then they started, they have one big square in the center and they asked, you know, how many of you are a step parent come into the big square, you know, and, and just in inviting people based on those commonalities rather than the divisions that they were already in. And eventually, you know, obviously you had everybody in the big square <laughs> because we all had some kind of link or some kind of commonality that that should bind us together more than the differences that separate us and i just you know i may not be into the things that you know you're into Alyssa or you felicia or you mary i mean but i don't begrudge you your your pleasure in doing them you know um I'm a fan of snakes. Not everybody is a fan of snakes. I love snakes. I'm with you. I'm in the middle about snakes. I'm trying to be <laughs> okay with snakes, but I don't want to see a group of them. And I blame my mother because the first movie I ever saw was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like four or five, maybe years old and I remember the impression of my mom's face in my back so I was sitting on her lap when he fell into the snake pit she's like oh god it's snakes and just losing it and I'm like mom it's okay it's fine and then she's like no and I'm like okay Andy's afraid of snakes mom's afraid okay snakes are bad <laughs> so I'm now 40 years later working through this and like I touched a snake in in PetSmart and I felt really good I felt like yeah I can lick this so like you want to touch some more and it's like no I'm done I'm done for today. Once enough. Thank you. See, and I'm like Indy's pilot when he's running away at the beginning. Come on, man. Have some backbone. Oh, gosh. No. no. Dogs, kids, I can do it. But, you know, even bugs. I can deal with it. But, oh, gosh. A bunch of snakes? A group? I don't know what they're called as a group. Like a hiss of snakes? <laughs> a herd of snakes? No. A slithering? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know what they're called. A scurrious. I don't know. We have to look that up. <laughs> to the Google. <laughs> so um, going back to Goliath, where do you think that world is headed from from where it is when you're when you leave off? Oh, gosh, that sounds <laughs> I just. <laughs> My my first inclination is like, no, it's not going to look good for anybody. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe there's that one reporter. Maybe she'll take away something from it that she can 
affect a change. Uh, you can only hope. I, yeah. <laughs> it it feels feel pessimistic. It feels to me just like the cycle of gentrification that we experience in places. It doesn't. It doesn't feel hopeful to me. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. It feels like the cycle's going to repeat. You know, you'll still have that. Okay, they'll come back. They'll rebuild the earth, but it'll still be that division. Like there'll be the domed areas and outside the dome, and um, if we lose that group, we lose that group of stackers or people outside the dome. Later, there'll be another underclass that is created um, and it'll continue unless you have some sort of super radical thought. Like I was thinking, gather everybody up, <laughs> gather all the stackers, let them go to space for a little while. You stay here, you mind the store and I'm gonna go party and see what, what comes out of that. But I don't think anyone would ever get together and say, oh, hey, let's do that. Because the, the people on the ground have a prejudice against the people on the colonies. So when I was done with the book, I was just sighing. Like I closed it and it was really dramatic. Like, oh, it's, it's gonna happen again, you know? So it just, I hope he writes a sequel. Maybe one day he'll feel empowered to write a sequel and we can see if this universe expands because that's no matter what group you belong to humans have that need to explore and expand so maybe it becomes something like firefly where you've got the outer rim i love that show so much um or something like that so they're just like oh i'm stuck on the stupid moon you know but it's a different set of circumstances Destroy, rebuild, destroy, rebuild, destroy, rebuild. Yes, human nature. Okay, I've discovered a group of snakes. It's called a den or a pit. So, and den is the collective when you're referring to them. So, there we go. <laughs> Mystery solved. I don't like dens of snakes. There we go. Good to know. Don't give that to her for her birthday. <laughs> okay, yeah, take that off. <laughs> take that off my list. Oh, okay, that's where I was headed, but... <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think uh, Tochi Onyabuchi, he's going to be writing, I think, for Captain America, for the new Captain America for Sam Wilson. Ah. So maybe he can he'll explore certain <laughs> topics. Oh, gosh. That. Yeah, that one, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. That was a rough one, too. And it kind of fits together with what Onyibuchi is doing because everyone was questioning issues of racial history and experimentation and what does it mean for a black man to be Captain America? Um, and I think Marvel actually handled that really well. Uh, and so I'll be excited to see what Onyibuchi would do with that universe and with those characters. I think he'll do it well. He'll do you proud. I'm already proud. Just Sam being Captain America, <laughs> already super proud. I was like, oh, that's my boy up there. You know, uh, and I was just so happy to see a major superhero out in the forefront and 
not covering up history and actually saying, hey, we have problems, that doesn't make me any less of a hero. You know, I can save you just as well as Steve. Those, I'm sorry, Steve is really my husband. You know, love him. <laughs> it's great to see, like, not not that I, not just one major black act superhero. Like mm -hmm. We have Black Panther. It's nice to see more. Uh -huh. um, oh, I'm so excited for the next Black Panther movie. I think oh, I'm just yeah. going to take oh, a yeah. box of, of tissue with me. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm just like, should I take a towel? Just like, <laughs> just go straight for that. But just go straight for that. <laughs> yes, but it's happy. It will be happy tears. It will be. It will be wonderful to see those characters on the screen again. Oh yeah. I th I think we've covered it. Do you Do you guys have any final thoughts? I want to know who you'd recommend this book to. Hmm. Oh my gosh. My first thought is they would never let me teach this book to my <laughs> to my high school students. Um, but uh oh, I activated Bixby. Um I would love like if we had a book club, like a personal book club with my students, I would say let's read this together. Let's let's talk about this and walk through this. I've already told my aunt, um, she's a retired educator. I'm sending her a copy. I was like, I need you to read this book and it's going to be upsetting and you might cry, but it's one of those books that really feels like literary fiction, like Zora Neale Hurston, Ralph Ellison. I was like, wow, you know, I feel like very strong Toni Morrison vibes coming from this book. And these books are amazing, yet painful. So it's like, oh, okay, I'll get ready. Like she's preparing herself <laughs> for reading. I agree. Um, it just feels so important and moving and the language is so elegant and uh, it builds you, you see everything that he's written and yes. it's just so wonderful. Yeah. I like the way he, he describes things and the leaves, the natural beauty of the wild forest. And it's like, I can feel that like I'm there, you know, and just saying it in such an elevated and elegant way. It wasn't rough. You know, the story, the subject matter was rough, but the way he delivered it was quite beautiful. I, I would recommend it to anybody who likes Nnedi Okorafor, now that mm -hmm. I think about, I mean, because you're right, he does have that, he has a very definite gift for, for language and for eloquence. Or yep. poetic language, I guess you would call it, poetic yeah. language. <laughs> I agree. It's definitely contemporary lit. I felt like I was in a contemporary lit class when I was going through this book and thinking about all its themes. Um, but I would also recommend it to fans of Margaret Atwood, oh, just yeah. for the purely for the speculative fiction aspect of this book. It goes places, uh, it goes, you know, into the future and warns us against ourselves the same way that she does. It does. We could do a whole nother hour just on <laughs> Margaret Atwood and Onyebuchi. You know, wow. I love it. I would definitely want to see this as a college course. Like, Maybe we should invite them to talk to each other. Oh, I will tweet. <laughs> I would do that. Like, hey, could y'all vibe together and <laughs> record it so we can hear it? Dang, what a convo. I know. That'd be awesome. Maybe we should work on that. Okay. We're going to talk later. 
Okay, we're going <laughs> to put good. him on the job. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening, everybody. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please remember to uh, give us a good rating if you did. You can view our book list and reviews or suggested reads at our Goodreads page. That's Sap Will Escape the Earth at Goodreads. Uh, write us uh, with stories, suggestions, random thoughts, interesting sci-fi and geek culture information at sapwillescapetheearth at gmail.com. All smushed together like one word. Next month, we're going to be discussing the Kaiju Preservation Society by John Scalzi. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Felicia, thank you for joining us also. We should say that. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me geek out with you guys. It was awesome. Escape the earth.